contraction and convergence, which most of the speakers agreed on unanimously as well. I'm afraid that it actually has the answer, because if you can see some expansion and some growth amongst the poor world, and some contraction to make up the difference in the rich world, then you've essentially solved this problem of going for sustainability and allowing and, and being able to solve poverty. In fact, intrinsically solving poverty is the same as part of that equation. So I wholeheartedly support contraction and convergence for this very reason. Michael Mitra. Do you accept that if we're going to cut greenhouse gases sufficiently and fast enough, we must accept lower standards of living <coughs> in many parts of the world, including especially Britain? Thank you. No, I don't accept that, actually. Um, what I do accept is that we need to change drastically the way we do things, but it needn't necessarily be um, that we have to... Uh, this is Caroline's point, actually. We don't necessarily have to project ourselves as having a, a candle in a cape. I mean, if you go back 50 years to how we, we created energy then, there was coal, there was smoke in London, and actually moved away from all that. We've now got cleaner air than we had 50 years ago. What a gain that's been. And we should be projecting how we can get further gains in the future. If we have energy efficiency and conservation, for example, incentivized by the Chancellor, we actually cut our energy needs, people are better off, and we actually have helped the planet. They aren't opposites. I think that raises a huge question, because it isn't economic growth that the world actually needs. The demand for growth doesn't come from individuals, although we all want to be prosperous, we all want to be comfortable, and of course the 800 million who go to bed hungry every night want it most of all. It is capitalism actually is the cause of the demand for continuous economic growth. And what the whole climate change thing is bringing up, and of course the politicians around the world are, will, are absolutely terrified of this, it requires a wholly different economic as well as a different energy order. And if we have that, then I think the world profoundly changes, and for the good. Um, thanks for making that point, Mr. Nietzsche, on economic growth. But, um particularly interested in the fudge by the Liberal MP there, who says that we can have contraction and convergence, which implicitly implies a rapid reduction of consumption. Okay? But we all know the capitalist system relies on increases in the money supply and the creation of debt interest to actually work. So how do you sell a reduction in consumption to the electorate, particularly in a time of a pension crisis? Well... First of all, I think the question originally was about lower living standards and just living, living pragmatically where we are in terms of getting the public on board. I think if we go out collectively and say we want lower living standards, that's a much more difficult message to sell. 
And we've got to try and find a way of getting the public on board, including those who aren't particularly keen or interested in the issue. And sadly, there are still many who fall into that category. Now, I think one of the key things we do is indeed change dramatically the way we have our economics. We shouldn't just rely on GDP as a measure, for example. We have to look at uh, a much wider definition of how, how rich we are, which includes things like our environmental capacity. And we need to do things like moving away taxes from, from good things like employment onto bad things like carbon. And, and I'm in favour of a carbon tax. And so we start taxing in an, an entirely different way. So you start actually incentivising good behaviour and disincentivising bad behaviour. Now, it may well be that the market will deliver some of the good things in, that, in, in those circumstances. Uh, the market's out there, whether we like it or not. And we're not going to change all that in, in five or ten years. So what we can do is change the taxation system so that people do the right things. If you start making it far more expensive to travel by air, for example, and far cheaper to travel by, by, by train, then that's one thing you can do. You can do the same thing on energy. You can make it far cheaper to get energy efficiency in and far more expensive to burn fuel. You know, you start using those economic instruments and you start changing behaviour quite dramatically. It's a big question. So I'm going to ask Caroline to come on in on this. I think that this is a, a bullet we have to bite, if that's not a very nasty metaphor. And it seems to me that, to some extent, we can't fudge our way out of it. I mean, we need to say, what are these standards of living that we're talking about? Are we saying that people can go on having two or three cars per household and that can go on forever, not only in Britain, but right across the world? We are saying that that is not possible, and I think we have to be very, very clear about that. But I think that at the same time, that doesn't have to be uh, a message of, of gloom and doom in the sense that what we're talking about is that, you know, cars per se are not the issue. Mobility is the issue. Access, rather, is the issue. You know, being able to get to places where you need to be. So what we need to be doing is to be putting in place the policy frameworks that mean that people don't need, you know, need one car, let alone two or three. But I think there are some bottom lines here. And I think what's, what's so frustrating, particularly... From, from someone like David Cameron, let's say, is that he makes it sound like everything is just so easy, that we can go on with business as usual, a few technical fixes, and life will be fine. And there are aspects of life that will not be fine, cheap air flights being a key case in point. We just have to say that budget airlines are bad, they have to go now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all men so far. <laughs> How do we convince the United States to come on board? Because our GA conference last year and very little was achieved. How do we get the Americans on board? Let's tackle that one. I mean, I just think it's important to remember that, that the United States isn't limited to George Bush. Thank yeah. God. Yeah. But there are some amazing people in the United States. And there are some amazing movements in the United States, and they are gathering together, whether they be the mayors of the different cities who've decided, irrespective of the fact that Bush doesn't sign up to Kyoto, that they are going to work on Kyoto targets. So I think we have to see beyond the Bush administration, which, as everybody has said, is about to kind of decline any moment, and look into the other areas of the United States where there's some really positive stuff going on, and what we need to do is be linking with them. You know, because in many ways they're doing better than aspects of, of, of us. I mean, you know, so let's, let's kind of make a, a citizen sort of bond across the Atlantic rather than worrying about George Bush. Well, very briefly, as, as Caroline says, Bush does not equal America. I mean, that's a very important point. The governors of the states on both sides, on California, Schwarzenegger, uh, New York, uh, Michael Bloomberg, are actually in favour, voluntarily, of carbon emission reduction. 
uh, against their own federal government. Uh, that is remarkable. There are 150 local authorities, uh, executive mayors of major cities, all of whom accept that that's the way the world's going. There is industry which is seeing that's the way the world economy is going to go. Jeff Immelt, uh, who is the chief executive officer of General Electric, one of the world's biggest companies, has himself said, realising that that is uh, what he's going to have to do if he's going to have to sell in future, that he is voluntarily engaging in carbon emission reductions. And uh, believe it or not, and I could scarcely believe this, Walmart, who I believe, as, if not world enemy number one, uh, <laughs> quite near, uh, there is one of the, I don't think it's the chief executive officer, but one of the leading officers on the board of it, has himself also agreed that despite all the other awful things that Walmart is doing, they are going to reduce by 20% within 10 years. So an awful lot is happening. And don't forget, Bush will only last three years, and the way he's going, I hope and believe it won't even be that. This is a technical question about... Um, so I think Norman Baker mentioned it, so if I can address it to you. Um, I don't really understand carbon sequestration because... To me, it seems like a very, very new um, technology, and it's akin to burying things under the carpet, as far as I can tell, because how do we really know how it's going to affect, how it's actually going to work later on in the future? Well, I mean, burying this stuff, it just doesn't really seem yeah. Well, th there are one or two areas where it's already working, and there's been a good deal of work actually in America. Uh, there's a pilot project starting off, uh, of course, at Peterhead in Scotland, uh, and I think there's one in Norway as well. So it's a, it's a technology which the indication suggests that it will work. Now, let me be quite clear. If we were starting from scratch, I would not be suggesting it. I'd be suggesting energy efficiency, renewables, uh, because we've got plenty of renewables in this country, but it's not the case everywhere else. So it's not an ideal solution. But I'm just pragmatically identifying where we are now, which is that there is a growing... Uh, it, there's an increase in energy consumption across the world. That's going to carry on, whether we like it or not. Uh, and therefore, what we'll have to do is to try and make sure that we minimise the carbon uh, uh, emissions from that energy consumption. Uh, and if we can do that, then uh, all these, uh, one of the biggest contributions we can make is to try and reduce the emissions from fossil fuel plants across the world. And carbon sequestration, if we can do that, then the capture of carbon um, and, and the burying it either in, uh, in old uh, oil fields and so on is one way I think we can achieve that. It's not an ideal solution. But I think pragmatically we have to, have to embrace that. I wanted to ask Caroline Lucas in particular, but others may know, if people have actually quantified the, the climate costs of war, not only the flights and the trading flights, but maintaining the uh, armies and other forces, and of course the arms industry, and all of that economic activity, which is a big part of the world's economic activity, yeah. a big expenditure of human energy, is something that I think most people, you know, when we're asked to give something up because of climate change, I think war would be something that... and there were women 
instead of caring for the survivors of the disasters that they've suffered as a result partly of war. And I think that perspective that women are giving, particularly in the third world, but not only, is really important for us all. Thank you.
But what I'm also keen to do is to not shut doors on people. And I think I want to pull people along as far as you can go in, in, in all parties, which is why I suggested, uh, and I actually wrote to the other parties, to ask for, um, to, if they're interested in a cross-party consensus on, on climate change in the House of Commons. And, and to be fair to the Conservatives, they responded and said they were interested in talking about that, and the government said they weren't for the time being. And we've now got an agreement. Um, it's a low-level agreement. I'm not pretending to change anything, but it's a low-level agreement between uh, the Lib Dems, the Tories, uh, the Scottish Nationalists, Fly Cymru, and um, Ian, uh, even Dr Ian Paisley, believe it or not, uh, who signed up to that. Now, what I want to try and do is to do two things slightly different in politics from what's been done before, is to move as far down that track of agreement as you can get while still retaining the option of pushing forward for what you believe in further down the track and being free to criticise parties uh, for not going far enough. But I think all, to say that every party you know, party's wrong totally is, is dis destructive. We have to try and get as far down the track as we can get to together. So I certainly believe that contraction convergence is essential. Uh, we're not going to get the solutions internationally without it. I agree with Colin Challen on that. He chairs that particular all-party group. I chair the all-party environment group. But I think if there are those who are further behind in terms of reaching that conclusion, rather than shut the door on them, let's try and edge, edge them along towards that conclusion. Hello. Um, I'm rather um, baffled. Um, the, the lady there uh, mentioned uh, war and the emissions from war, and she's quite right in, in raising that to the point. However, unfortunately, given that we don't live in a democratic society, we don't have any say whether or not there is going to be a war or, or what is going to happen during a war. But what we do have a control over is what we eat. I'm rather surprised that um, the climate change um, activists, many people haven't adopted a meat-free diet. Um, Jonathan Forrest has pointed out an excellent article in The Guardian, and he also researched in various universities to endorse this, that um, meat-eating produces uh, more uh, uh, greenhouse gases than driving a car uh, per, per head of population. Um, in fact, uh, somebody on, on, on a meat diet produces one and a half tons of uh, greenhouse gases more than somebody on a, on a, on a meat-free diet, whereas the average family car produces one ton of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gases per annum on average. Okay. Therefore, it's quite clear, by changing your diet, you can still drive a car, not that I'm endorsing driving a car, and, and still reduce uh, greenhouse emissions. And in fact, given that there are so many people in the world, visibly um, the amount of cars there are in the world, um, if people in the world became uh, vegetarian or better yet vegan, then um, uh, green, uh, global warming would cease to be an issue. Um, okay. So, rather than protesting against ESO, which is admirable in itself, we should be protesting against abattoirs. Okay. Hello, I, I, I don't want to get into a kind of a technical argument, but um, one of the things I can But one of the things I have done is actually look very carefully at my own lifestyle. I, I am a meat eater and got the best data I could on the impacts coming my meat eating and whilst certainly I agree with you but, meat, but, but all aspects of our lifestyle need to look in the figures as I understand them for a moderate low level meat eating diet do not actually sustain the claims that you made the one uh, very interesting comparison is actually taking the emissions relating to a, a meat based locally grown diet in which meat was a small component of that diet with a vegan diet where the components of those came from long distance travel. And I have yeah. to say, a lot of the vegan friends I know seem to live on a diet consisting very largely of long distance cash crops. <laughs> <laughs> the, the meat, 
the meat-based diet actually came out, uh, came out just about ahead on points. I think you make a very valid point, so I don't wish to in, in any way to demean it. But my understanding of statistics is there's only one thing that you can say categorically has to change under climate change and that cannot happen under a carbon, under a carbon restrained world, and that is flying. I think before we uh, I hand over to um, the climate change campaign for a few housekeeping matters, I'd like to close part of the event to close. I'd like you all to join me, please, in thanking our speakers for their contributions.